Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Shabo Tian. I'm a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Michigan State University. I direct the Smart Microsystems Lab, and our work focuses on soft robotics, underwater robotics, smart materials, and control systems. So much for joining us, Professor. I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memory where you were interested in science and technology? If you remember any memories about that. Yeah, I I think I liked engineering from my very early uh, a stage.、Um, I liked experimenting with stuff,、uh, especially circuits. I remember once I was building a solenoid、um, when I was a middle school student. Uh, I was doing that at home without any instructions or guidance or supervision. I basically wound some copper wires around a boat, and I believe I plugged that into、uh, into the wall. And the next thing I knew was explosion and a huge, basically huge kind of blast <laughs> at home.、Uh, so it's lucky that I'm still here. It's fascinating in middle school, and you don't solenoid. I think it's very advanced. I think for middle school, yeah, it sounds interesting. Yeah, so I would like to back what's first robot you build. Well, it's funny that I don't think I built any robot、um, until until I got into my current position,、uh, a faculty member at Michigan State. Uh, even that, arguably, it's not me building the robots; it's my students building the robots.、Um, part of that was because my background was in controls. Not all my bachelor on a, a bachelor's, master's, and PhD training、uh, was on control, control theory, and some control applications. And、um, so, so of course, I knew robots. I have seen robots, but I never got really got a chance to. Uh, build robots.、Um, so, the first robot that I would say my group or you know when I was involved was actually soft robot kind of flavor.、Um, it was a IPMC, which is electroactive polymer.、Uh, IPMC actuated a robotic tadpole. I call it tadpole because it looked like a tadpole. In fact, it was. Uh, Easter egg shell housing some electronics, and then there was a、uh, the IPMC tail, you know, at the end.、Uh, it didn't really do much. We wiggled the tail a little bit,、um, but we were so exciting because that was built by essentially some undergrads and some、uh, high school, middle school students. So、mm-hmm. that I considered that was our first robot. We would like to go for this in detail later because I'm personally interested in your work about ionic electroactive polymer and by IBMC as well. So, but before、sure. that, what is the most inspiring living creature from your perspective? Something could be fascinating、uh, for designing inspiration for designing smart material. Yeah, I think other than humans, I still believe humans are 
most uh, inspiring and impressive creature on the earth. Uh, I think uh, other than human, that'll be octopus. Of course, uh, that it has been a, uh, the source of inspiration for many of us in the software robotics community. But I, you know, I, I, that's still my vote um, because it has a lot of unique features. For, ex for example, it has three hearts and people say they have nine brains, they have blue blood, they have uh, amazing capability of uh, camouflaging, and uh, if you, uh, not if you, but if their arms is injured, they can completely regenerate their arms. So, so all of that, you know, show extreme capability of, of doing things, right? So they're suckers, they're, they're arms. So uh, I think that's really amazing. And uh, as I mentioned, people are all fascinated by it. And uh, they have, people have built all kinds of octopus-inspired robots. Um, and recently, I'm starting to work with some biologists and uh, you know, experts in other areas. We try to understand the sensory motor circuits associated with the grasping uh, by um, octopus. And hopefully, we can translate that knowledge into uh, soft robotic arms that are really smart. That's super interesting. And I would like to ask you what could be the missing piece when you look to the octopus having a straight heart and nine brain each arm and can regenerate if an injury happened. What could be the missing piece between what we have in nature and what we're trying to replicate in soft robotics? What do you think that the most important aspect we have to go for to solve this missing piece? I think there are it's not really uh, one piece missing. I, I think a lot of pieces are missing uh, because, of course, it, the, we all know that octopus has, and, and other creatures have such amazing capabilities because they are millions and millions of years evolution. Uh, and we're trying to emulate their capabilities with, relatively speaking, still very... Uh, sort of primitive tools, right? So, so I think there, you know, there are multi-facets of, of, uh, of factors here. We need advanced hardware, uh, advanced materials, and advanced our biological understanding. And uh, at the end of the day, to put things together, I mean, I, I don't think we can ever really emulate the true capabilities of these animals, but hopefully, um, you know, significant advances can be made in the coming, say, you know, five to ten years. Okay, that's a great. But I think, again, I would like to point that you have this different expertise, especially you work in automatic control design and, and smart material. So how do you see this combination to working in two different uh, expertise and, and emerging a new research line of how to understand the smart material and designing control? If you can tell us more about how two different backgrounds you have helped you to develop a research line of research for your lab. Absolutely. Uh, maybe I can step back a little bit to tell you how these things kind of merge together uh, from my own history. So uh, my PhD was uh, controls, right? Uh, I was working on specifically the uh, modeling and the control of hysteresis in smart materials. Uh, here, smart materials basically refer to things like piezoelectric actuators, 
chip memory alloys, magnetostrictive materials, and so on. So they all have this hysteresis nonlinearity that um, have impeded their use in different applications. So, so that's my dissertation topic. And, um, and from that, what I have gained was appreciation of material science and material physics, and as opposed to just control theory. And I also developed appreciation of mathematical modeling because I think that is a conduit from the physics to uh, sort of to mathematical representation, and then we can apply control tools. So to some extent, I still feel as a control engineer, I think modeling of the system is maybe more important than you know just the control methods because oftentimes it suffices to use simply the uh, existing control tools. What we don't have, especially when we deal with new materials or new robots, uh, is the set of models, right? How do you describe that? Once I can cast that in you know, the familiar language of control, uh, you know, dynamic systems, I will have a way of hopefully controlling those. So, so that's, I think, the, the most important uh, gain from my PhD study. So when I started my faculty job at uh, Michigan State, um, I looked into different materials because my PhD was on magnetostrictive materials in particular, but people all advised me saying, now you are independent. You should not just continue only with your previous path. So we need to find something new. So that's why I looked to uh, electroactive polymer uh, materials. Right, so, so once I have initially, we just purchased some samples, and uh, gradually we start to uh, read papers and exploring fabrication of those materials ourselves, and uh, and further down the road, I just told you about that, you know, robotic tadpole, and people are people were very interested, and they say, okay, that's that's really really cool. And then that got me excited, and we started to look into more seriously about robotic fish. And so, so that's how everything sort of evolves. Um, and, and to today, we actually have pretty, I think, active program in general in robotics. So uh, looking back and uh, looking at your question, I really think this is, a, uh, you know, this is really useful in terms of Combining material physics with with models with control and uh, even look at the scale of robotics, of course, which is a, a bigger system than just a single actuator. I think it is it is really useful and instrumental to to put like physics and those mathematical models and new tools together. Right, so that's sort of. Uh, mutually beneficial and mutually, I would say, uh, in, um, promoting. I think you said a very interesting point, and I would like to split it again about the modeling part. You say that modeling is much more important than the control algorithm you, you have to come up with, whether it techniques. But may I ask you why modeling is so challenging? And which level of modeling uh, you have to consider? What are you working? Which is scale of modeling? And do you have the feeling of perception? Modeling is underrated in uh, soft robotics research. I think P 
people in software robotics have actually uh, developed a strong appreciation about modeling because uh, people have realized that software robots are very different from, say, rigid robots, right? Which can, which are already fairly uh, well characterized, you know, in terms of their kinematics and dynamics. But um, so I don't think that this community lacks appreciation of uh, the mo the use and the challenges of modeling for soft robots. Uh, it is probably, you know, the other question, basically, what is the right solution uh, to to the modeling challenge? Um, now, for that, I, I personally, you know, I, I'm struggling too, right? Meaning people have looked at different ways of doing it, um, but it's just so complicated. I think that the thing is not just <clears throat> things are soft, um, just because there are so many things involved. Sometimes not just material, but also different mechanisms like stiffness tuning mechanism, and uh, <clears throat> and then you have other, you know, maybe novel environmental factors, right? What what are you interacting with? So it's just sometimes it's I think it's just too many things involved. Uh, the challenge is what do you trim? What do you keep? And at the end of the day, you can still get something meaningful in terms of understanding the physics as well as useful in terms of the control design. Um, there are different ways people are trying, including some data-driven approaches. So I'm still looking with interest you know, how the community can come up with good solutions and we're also trying to do our own um, part of the job. Interesting. And do you think because modeling is time-consuming sometimes, are you with the idea that you have to take easy approach or maybe um, applicable approach like data-driven, for example, or empirical um, result, and then you can up come with coupling for modeling, for example, such technique in any conductive polymer, or just you have to go to modeling? Which technique you think could be feasible for a student listening mm -hmm. to us? You have to invest a lot of time in understanding the modeling? or just you have to take easy techniques uh, to describe system? And maybe missing parameters. So we speak about here what would be significant parameters in the system, because you still, it's still you, you don't know what could be the significant parameter yet. So which approach do you advise students if they are working in, in software robotics? So I, I still strongly encourage, no matter what, everybody should try to understand physics of the materials and sensors and actuators involved um, just to give you better understanding what are you working with, right? I, I strongly discourage people from just saying, okay, I'm going to take the input-output data, let's do data-driven modeling because at the end of the day, you would only have something that's empirical and not physically insightful and not able to you know, generalize to more uh, common situations, right? So, so, so I think first of all, you know, no matter what you take at the end, you should try to understand the physics. And then, on the other side, I think we do need to consider what would be practical, right? Um, there are a lot of things in the literature. There are different tools available, um, and maybe we can, maybe we cannot always link the 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 data to a physics-based model, 
right? It depends on depends on what's available. Um, but you know, we we having said that, yes, we work with what we can, and it's there's no shame to say, oh, I'm looking at data driven models. Now, frankly, we are also looking into data driven models at this point, right? So, so it's very, I think it's a very open field, and we don't want to restrict us to any particular you know narrow corner you know, when it comes to looking for solutions. Great. So coming back to smart material, because indeed your lab has been doing uh, great work in smart material. But I would like to ask you, do you think of the community, to which level do you think really, uh, we really exploit the smart material functionality? To which level do you think we really understand uh, how we can use a smart material in a proper way? And maybe the question related here, and we ask this question, how the controller uh, can get, get the task done without destroying the natural dynamics. And of course, here we speak about smart material uh, because sometimes we had this, uh, it's happening, it could you, you try to uh, get certain behavior, uh, but the material have highly nonlinear, especially for any conductive polymer. And, and that's maybe argument here. How, how, what's your thought about this statement? Yes, well, I'm biased. <laughs> As I told you, I have my background in controls. I don't think control would destroy anything if you do it right. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, I think uh, uh, that is the right thing to do. Meaning for 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 us to create a control-oriented model and then design controllers accordingly to generate desired behavior for actors or for robots. So. I don't think ever you can you, you say you know a well-designed controller would destroy the nice say nonlinear dynamics of uh, of soft materials. Um, having said that, you know I also agree that controller control techniques maybe uh, or new control techniques need to be looked at, especially when dealing with uh, soft robots because as we all know that you know. Soft robots are very adaptable. Sometimes the interaction with the environment automatically uh, drive the robot toward the right path, right, or the right behavior. So, uh, so I think it takes some thinking when we design controllers. Uh, what is the the minimal complexity controller that we can develop to get the desired outcome. It's not always saying, okay, let's go to a 1000 dimensional system and then try to do a, you know, controller based on that, right? And apply, apply that uh, complicated control to the system because sometimes it is, it is not a necessary. Um, but again, you know, to what level the, uh, we should let that happen, right? Because for example, if you have a software robots, you said, okay, it's okay. You know, we can have collision. Uh, so the environment interaction will force it back to, okay, whatever, you know, the right constraint. However, we also have to consider this is really still engineered object, right? They might still break. They might get damaged. So, so there is also, a, a, I would say, limit how much we can let the environment do the job. So everything is different. The experience of you know, we working with different projects tells us that uh, we really have to we really have to consider the the real challenges when you have you know applications and 
from there, you can derive how much tolerance I have in terms of in terms of sort of self-adapting. Let the soft robot to do self-adapting, right, when interacting with with the environment, and how much of it we have to control so that uh, we keep the actual robot safe. That's super interesting. I would like to ask you here, maybe student asking, what could be the limitation? Because you said that there's a limit. So if you, we can ask this question, what could be uh, the important parameters you have to consider in designing control and considering the limitation for software boy? What limitation you have witnessed uh, for the controller, uh, a traditional control technique in software robotics? Yeah, so maybe I can uh, bring up one example, not necessarily for control purpose, but maybe it's uh, it's quite um, uh, I would say useful to to kind of uh, to see the see the point here. Um, one of our projects deals with developing a soft sensor for detecting the suction of sea lampreys. So sea lampreys are native species in Atlantic Ocean, but they are invasive species in the lakes around, you know, Michigan, like Great Lakes. Um, so one way that, uh, you know, we, or we have, we need to monitor and we need to control uh, these species, right? So one idea we had uh, was to have soft sensors, almost like you can think of uh, soft panels mounted in the natural environment, for example, rocks or any other uh, path uh, that these animals will travel through. Um, these animals like to suck because when they are tired, they suck to the surface to rest, okay, against the flow. And of course, sucking is their means of um, survival, survival as well because that's how they attack uh, host fish and you know, take out their body fluids and so on. So anyway, so we have this project and, um, and we have developed a very nice, I would say capacitive pressure sensor uh, that is able to detect both positive and negative pressure. Right? So the idea is when you have the animal sucks to the panel, the mouth, the rim of the mouth will be pushing against the panel, so therefore that's positive pressure. But because it's sucking, so the the cavity of the mouth will generate basically the negative pressure. Right? So it's it's uh, so we published a very nice paper on that, and uh, and we were uh, very hopeful. Okay, when we start testing on animals, now there are other challenges that we have experienced. Number one is. Uh, things went very well when we test the device with a vacuum you know, suction cup. Okay, it shows very clear pattern you know, of, of the suction of the pressure distribution. But because animal itself, as we know, is uh, is is life, right? So there are tissues and there are a lot of things going on there, you know, in the body. So they are very uh, important source of capacitance. So when we try to detect the suction. And we were having huge trouble because when the animal approaches or sucks, uh, that capacitive disturbance totally overwhelms the sensor signal from just the pressure itself, right? So, so that's one thing. That the other thing is, uh, animal actually, uh, these animals have teeth kind of protruding out. So when they suck, they kind of also grind the sensor with their teeth. 
So in a few rounds, we found the sensor was damaged. Okay, so it's so like in that in that case. Um, so this example, I think there are you know there are a few lessons we learn from here. Number one, as 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 back to our question here, uh, you you always have limitations for especially our engineered sensors, actuators, or robots, right? And these are these are realistic examples when you put your system in test. Okay, have you really thought about what you these guys will have to go through, right? So, so for this case, we didn't think the teeth will you know be working against us, right? And the second thing is, for again for realistic challenges, uh, such as this one, right? There are many many other factors that that could work against us. So, so really, uh, I don't necessarily view this as negative. Um, Instead, we view this as opportunities because we really want to put a solution there. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to test, discover the challenges, and figure out new ways of doing it. That's wonderful. And I maybe mean, also the other uh, um, question we have about uh, ionic conductive polymer or IBMC, why there is there's resentment about um, the material. Sometimes we have a very slow response if you have a higher force, it will be slow um, bandwidth. And there's always a trade-off between the mechanical performance and the response of bandwidth. Why, why do you think we have this trade-off? Do you think we can have um, well, any conductive polymer IBMC with high forces and high bandwidth? And I think, I don't know if you agree with that, I think in a community, we still accept this limitation. And maybe there's disappointing about this material cannot really make a significant uh, applications of robotics. And that is something we receive comment about that, how we can enhance the material with has really interesting feature, low current, and there's really a potential, but still there's a huge limitation behind it. What, how do you think we can advance and, and, move for, uh, and move forward having high forces and high bandwidths for uh, ionic conductive volume IPMCs? That's an excellent question. In fact, uh, I would generalize you know, your question. So now you see I'm trying to avoid answering the question. I, I actually would generalize your question to say, can you give me any actuator, any smart material that is able to deliver large force, high bandwidth, large displacement, and with small power uh, required? Uh, I think this probably, my personal opinion, is the most important challenge facing our community. If we really want to pursue things that we think are, you know, very cool, like octopus kind of um, robots. Of course, people have sort of got around that problem by using more traditional actuators, right? Like motors or uh, let's say pneumatic actuation, which are very effective, but Really, if we want to think about very compact soft robotic systems, I would really prefer not to use, say, the pneumatic you know, sources and all the valves and all these motors and all these wiring uh, in order to do uh, the, you know, the cable-driven type of actuation. So, so, so that is one, I feel, the, the most important question to me. And unfortunately, I do not have answer. And I think our community really should uh, all work hard on this. I mean, 
there I don't I cannot name a actuator that meets all these requirements yet they are so desirable so if you look at biological muscles right so you know, we have been talking about artificial muscles for so many years and we're still very very far off great um, maybe ask you what could be the pain point just you think we have to work on do you think it's about modeling again or designing what is the key for solving this question? Is it modeling or designing? Or I think the ultimate breakthrough may have to come from um, on material science side. We need to have we need to have new materials um, or significant advance on existing materials. It's not just you know a little bit of tweak here and there, um, and maybe maybe something completely different. Um, because if you just look at these different actors, they always have, you know, this, there are some thermally actuated actors, you know, they can produce force, you know, nice force and nice displacement, but they're slow, right? So, so, so I think ultimately, you know, modeling, just modeling alone, I don't think that will get us very far. I mean, this is like, okay, you can do optimization if you have something existing, but really I, I hope the community can come up with some novel ways of synthesizing materials, um, and fabrication. Of course, fabrication has already been advancing really rapidly in the past few years. Uh, that has resulted in significant, I would say, advances in things like sensors. Right? You can do three D printing of all kinds of materials um, that allows you to do sensing. So I, I'm less worried about sensing than actuation. You know, when it comes to uh, miniaturization and integration. Yeah. So maybe we can go to the controller side. If we ask you what kind of nonlinearities you have to keep or remove for soft robotics, because we know that nonlinearities can bring opportunities for buckling, etc. But if I ask you what kind of nonlinearities you think when you work in, in your system, that something could be useful and that something could be detrimental for our soft robotics. What could be two scenarios for the bad and good side of nonlinearities for soft robotics? Well, as you as you just mentioned, uh, there are certain nonlinearities that are very beneficial. Uh, people are exploiting those for achieving fast response and sometimes less complicated control, like buckling or biostability of you know, different structures. Uh, there. Their softness, right? So uh, is certainly I, I don't know how to characterize that as nonlinearity, but certainly uh, is uh, is an important factor when we when we try to keep or exploit in different uh, in different applications. Um, in terms of nonlinearity, I think of course a lot of materials exist hysteresis, right? I mean, which actually is my the topic dear to my heart. Um, these include the uh, all the smart materials we are aware of, as well as you know these soft, uh, in general, soft materials, even uh, like new soft pneumatic actuators. And uh, I would not find any good reason to believe those nonlinearities are any beneficial, right? So they should be taken out. Um, in most cases, um, another thing could be the because of the, the softness. Maybe you will see long creep 
because sometimes we have you know, sensors that um, they really have really, really long, I would say, time constants, big cost time, big constants, uh, which makes uh, which makes it really challenging to you know to have uh, accurate sort of reading of the measured signal. So, uh, so again, I guess this is not exactly about control, but you know, it's a, it's a, maybe it is. So, so these are things that I think are not non-desirable, and we should try to find find a way to mitigate. Great. So, if I ask you, what, were there any direction you thought would work out very well, but uh, empirical result proved something else, would be interesting for you, and you didn't expect it when you have in the series was different, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we should go back to the previous example about the sea lamprey sensor. I, I don't have a good say insight as to one direction. Okay, I thought it will work, but it doesn't work at the end. But I think uh, in reality, in many many, I would say projects that we have been involved with, um, we thought okay, this is a great solution at least on paper, but when we go to the real wild world uh, often turns out that's not a good solution right so the example i just gave you um you know we thought this is good pressure sensor but we didn't expect the animal approach right or animal attachment would directly cause disturbance of the measurements um and we didn't anticipate animal teeth would create the you know sort of destruction so so i think Maybe maybe a general lesson here is, or general advice is, to really put our research in the context of real application. And the final test or metric is, have we succeeded in terms of delivering that application by you know, putting your device through that real-life test? Um, so... So back to your question, I don't think there is, you know, or I, at least I'm not aware of any specific direction, but I feel a lot of ideas that we had initially may not work in the real application, uh, if, you know, especially if we have not tested, okay? And uh, having, involving those tests you know, during, throughout the project or throughout the research would give us new challenges and new opportunities. Yeah, thank you. So if I ask you what are the biggest technological roadblocks that could face soft robotics in short term and long term, do you think the community have to focus and address these challenges as soon as possible? I would still say, which we already covered, actuators. Yeah, actuators that are compact, low power, delivering large force, delivering uh, large deformation, yet yeah, consuming small power. Um, I think this is a even now it's a, it's a challenge we're looking at, but I don't know when this challenge can be overcome. So it might be a long term issue. Okay, so coming back to the speaking different languages, and I think there's something we brought every time in the episode that how we can overcome a challenge of speaking different language. And that's something we witness when you work with material science and control expert. We still, there's something we don't understand each other. And it takes a lot of effort that we have to come in the middle page 
tools that we can understand. How do you see this interdisciplinary uh, feature in software robotics uh, going now? Do you think it's going in the right direction or still we have to make effort, more effort, so that we can make the desired end goal for software robotics, the field? I think, I think we have come a long way, especially in this community, software robotics community, because if you just look at uh, active researchers, Active researchers in this field, uh, they have different backgrounds. So that's good news. In general, I think uh, you have raised a really good question. Whenever, you know, when it comes to interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary collaboration, you face this challenge of language barrier. For example, a simple word like modeling, right, or model, uh, could mean completely different things between two people, uh, which I personally have experienced. Right. So, so I think what we need to do is to have more conversations. Like in some of our research projects, they were initiated not just by, hey, you know, a phone call. Okay, can we write a proposal together? It's actually initiated through sometimes years-long conversations. We just sit together, have coffee or have tea, and, or just sitting in the office chatting about each other's work asking questions, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by this? And, uh, and find a common ground, and ultimately we can learn each other's language, right? Because that's really important. And then we can start to talk about possibilities. How do you put, say, motor learning with soft robots, right? And how do you address, you know, the in, how do you capture that dynamics of learning, okay, through some, maybe some data-driven approaches or some dynamic system approaches. Right? So, so it always takes years long of conversation for us to really come to agreement, okay, this is really something that we should work on, right? Because once we are awarded the grant, we know what to do. Right? So, so I think this is, uh, this is really uh, important. And we, you know, at Michigan State, you know, we have a software robotics sort of gathering, uh, people from uh, material science from, of course, robotics controls and um, and medical, right? We 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 gather together uh, regularly and talk about different ideas. So, so it is. Uh, I don't think it's unique for this field. It is really important for all such endeavors. And nowadays, especially if you, you know, look back the look back at the context uh, that we were just discussing, right? If you look work on real-world applications, you have to involve people from different areas, domain experts uh, from different spaces. Right? So in that case, you have to be able to talk to each other, and, uh, and there's no way to take the shortcut. Yeah. Great. Yeah. question again here about how can we enable more inclusive culture around competitive idea? I think that's something we, if we face in academia, that there's a challenge of and competition between different ideas for securing fund, funding grants. So, and there's a competition happening. So, how we can make sure this inclusive intellectual inclusiveness in ideas in the in the field? I think we all have to keep an open mind. As you know, let's say a professor myself, I welcome different ideas from my students. Right. Some students have really, really crazy ideas out of the box. Um, some students have less, I would say, uh, you know, risky ideas. Uh, 
But in any case, I wouldn't say no at you know at outset. I would say, okay, tell me more, right? And um, and then if I cannot convince the students, I say, okay, go ahead and explore and come back and let, let's discuss again. So so I think we have to encourage different ideas. You never know what idea or where the idea would take um, take the research, right? So so it's it's I think it's critical to not to. Uh, basically silence any sort of voice or uh, any sort of uh, I, you know, ideas. We can always debate, but yeah. don't, we can agree to disagree, but don't, yeah, don't, don't just silence people, including, especially I think people from, uh, I would say, disadvantaged groups. Right, so, so that's, that's important. Yeah. But, but I think here maybe the argument, or maybe realistically speaking, sometimes when you have maybe ideas outside of books and academia specifically, there's assessment for the high risk and low risk. And that's associated with funding and make sure that you run in academia. And we know about that. So how we can make sure that we keep innovation or maybe um, ideas maybe outside the books and completely new and also with mitigate risk that you can secure result at the end of the day. This, this is the problem we have in the field sometimes. It's, it happens. Yes. Yeah. So, so of course, you know, I, I have to put this in context, right? Or examples. Let's say I'm sitting on a National Science Foundation uh, panel, okay, Re reviewing different proposals. And that comes up a lot, right? So that kind of arguments come up a lot. People say, oh, the, I really love this idea. Um, you know, that's out of the box, uh, exciting novel, and if this is successful, in, you know, it'd be great. And then another person would say, hey, wait a minute, this I, yeah, idea is great, but I don't think this person has the right background, or I don't think they really uh, considered all the, you know, different details, right? So, uh, and there is a great chance of failure. So, so that, that kind of argument really, uh, I think it's important, that kind of debate is important. Uh, ultimately, who wins the argument, right? So, so I think uh, there, there is continuum in between because, because you know, there, there are sometimes out-of-box ideas, there are, there are clearly there are holes there, right? They're not, you know, they will not work. But there's some other ideas, it's just, lot of uncertainty and nobody says it's not going to work so yeah. it's it's up to sometimes of course the panelists like us as well as the program manager to make the call if they feel this is you know this is worth it right uh, then maybe start off with some smaller amount of my funding to let them explore and then when they come back with more evidence more proof then I think more aggressive effort or funding effort should be should be put forward. So, so it's not like and I, I of course I wouldn't go with you know, any risky idea we should found right. So that I mean there there is definitely we say high risk high reward because there is risk of failure failure, and uh, we do have to be able to use limited funding more you know in a wise way right. So, so but on the other hand. If anything, that you know, we should encourage exploration and at a certain point, maybe putting more resources. Yeah, I agree with you. So if I ask you, as you are beyond your lab, how you ensure with your team that soft robotics you develop is beneficial 
to community, or maybe in a, a shorter uh, term uh, for the community surrounding you, how you bring this discussion to the table? We, we do that all the time. In fact, we, we try to answer the question, you know, what if, why are we doing this, right? So we always have a background sort of application in mind. Uh, maybe that's also, you know, all the, uh, the case every time when we submit a grant proposal because we want to know how this is ultimately benefit society. And, um, and if you look at the, app, you know, the, the projects we have, we try to link that, link all the fundamental research to the future applications, like the, the lamprey you know, sensing uh, is one example. We have, we have other soft robotics related projects, right? Octopus arm or artificial arm, that of course is linked to future maybe smarter uh, prosthetic devices. Right. Um, we, we are working on soft robotic gloves that hopefully can help us understand motor learning for, you know, improving rehabilitation, for example, and so on. So, so I think uh, it's actually for soft robotics, it's really easy to make that connection, fortunately. Um, and the, the question is, the question is, how do we get there? Right. So, so it's not like, OK, I propose this and then I drop that. You know, once I have the support or financial support, I drop that final goal. I just work on, okay, nice papers, right? So I, I think that's sometimes, uh, you know, we should try to be careful about, right? So ultimately, yes, we want to work on fundamental sciences and engineering technologies. And ultimately, let's put that, put all those developments into test and see whether we can get closer and closer to the original goals. Thank you for the detail, Thank, you, thank you. So we are close to the end, we have a few questions left. The first one, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Depending on how you define ego. Interesting <laughs> point, if you can define ego, that would be great. Because I think there's a lot of misconception about ego. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, no, that's, that's, that's a good one. I think uh, being confident is really important. If ego means being confident, yes, it's critical because that allows you to uphold your belief, especially when you are, let's say you are a student, you are trying to convince your, convince your advisor, right, on results or on ideas. I think that having that confidence is really, really important. Uh, having said that, I think the real, you know, successful and, and confident researchers, they all have sort of a common trait, which is very open mind. They are not going to say, hey, you know, I said this, but you're trying to counter argue, do, trying to do a kind of argument, therefore I'm offended, right? So, so really, I don't think we should be offended if somebody else raises different ideas or different opinions. And, um, and that's something that, you know, I deal with almost on a daily basis with my students, right? So they, they know I'm not going to be offended, so they will challenge me. Uh, which I think is really, really important. That's a great advice, yeah. So um, if I ask you what is the most important qualities you have gained while working in academia and something you have to maintain for your journey? What so I think, right, I, I think, you know, as a researcher, if we want to stay active and we really need to be curious, 
and we need to be imaginative and also be adaptable. Meaning, you, you cannot just feel comfortable working on the same stuff over and over or very in a very incremental manner. You really want to look at what's happening around you, you know, in, the la uh, in the landscape of technology development and what your expertise could be leveraged to help advance the causes. Right, so, uh, so it we have to be we have to be adaptable in the sense that you know we build our core. Each of us builds our core expertise, but that expertise should be developed, evolved, uh, and adapt to to new challenges and new applications arising uh, in the horizon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was life changing for you? So, so maybe uh, nobody really gave me that particular advice, but I observed uh, when I was a PhD student, uh, one of my advisors mentioned something like, he learns from students, right? And I found that really, really useful and true when I became a professor, because students are, they are very curious, they are very energetic, and they are passionate, they have fresh ideas. So, so I love to learn from my students. And I think this is, you know, everybody has limited bandwidth. You know, professors really have limited time, right? So, so they have good ideas and they have wisdom, but they don't have that much time and they don't have that much energy. So, so really learning from students is, I think, is one of the biggest, uh, I, I think, you know, I was, I don't call that lesson, but that advice for myself right? and for maybe every other colleague. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, you can generalize that to basically listen to other people, right? So we all have very limited bandwidth. Right? We, we know very little by individuals. Mm -hmm. so, so really, it's good to have open attitude and say, hey, teach me something. That is a meaningful advice. I agree with you. And finally, do you have any final words of robotics community you'd like to say? Well, I, I think it's a great, very promising field with many, many hopes and also, unfortunately, some hypes right now. Um, so I would encourage and challenge everybody, uh, especially our young students and peers, uh, identify some real applications of impact and work on those, keep at those until we see success. So don't just stop at, okay, I have a paper, right? So see whether you can finally nail it and, uh, and have an impact. Thanks so much, Professor, for this interesting discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure, and thank you for this opportunity. So yeah, thank you. 